the book of Revelation with my dad, Dr. Thomas Robert Schreiner. Revelation with your pastor, Michael Lawrence, is coming, but I thought I'd take advantage of my parents being in town this last weekend to do an impromptu episode with my pops, who's currently writing a commentary on the book of Revelation. He's also written a shorter commentary on Revelation, and we can post a link to that in the episode notes. I thought it'd be nice to hear from a scholar and then your pastor on this book that is often an enigma and prompts fierce debates in evangelical circles, sometimes even in our church. So I hope you enjoy this episode and are helped. All right, Dr. Schreiner, thank you for being with us here on the Disciple Hinson podcast. I'm going to call you dad from here on out, though. That's good. I, I forgot your name, but it's great to be with you. Yes. Um, you have a lot of kids, so it's hard to keep track of us all. <laughs> so um, we want to talk about the the book of Revelation. Michael just mm. got done preaching 11 sermons um, on this book. You heard the last one. And uh, my first question is, have you ever had a vision like <laughs> like this? <laughs> I, I've had some really strange dreams, and I think it'd be interesting to spend the rest of the podcast talking about those, but we don't have time. Well, you did mention that you had uh, some strange dreams as you were sleeping in our TV room over the last few nights, yeah. so you could we could work with some recent material, but maybe we'll stick <laughs> to the to the revelation at the end of the Bible. So what's, um, what would you say revelation is all about? I would say revelation is, we could say king, it's about kingdoms and conflict. Uh, God, the, the the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan, and there's there's a battle. Of course, we know who wins at, at the end of the day. Revelation says God wins, God triumphs, God God is the victor, and then He's addressing the people. Uh, you 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 need to choose the right side, uh, it, because it appears often as if evil is going to triumph, but Revelation assures us uh, King Jesus will. Uh, will triumph. And um, what would you say then are some just some basic takeaways, some applications from this book in terms of how we're to live today in light of what we we see is to come? Yeah, I think uh, since, since Jesus is going to win, the the church faces two pressures in the book. One, one's external and one's internal. So the external pressure is uh, the, the world is worshiping the beast and the false prophet. The, the world is giving itself to, to false gods. And the church, the church is tempted to give in and to compromise, to avoid persecution, to avoid discrimination. So that, that's, that's one theme, you know, endure, hang on, don't give in. But the other theme, you especially see this in chapters two and three, it's really related, right? But it's internal compromise. To uh, to give in to uh, the prophet uh, Jezebel and uh, the the false teaching to to eat food offered to idols and to uh, commit sexual immorality, which I think is actually talking about spiritual adultery. So 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 you have compromise, compromise, and persecution. And- Do you think there's um, that one of those pressures is more salient for the American church today? Yeah, probably internal compromise, the the compromise of the church. I mean, of course, they're related in the book, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. At, at the end of the day, you're compromising because you want to get along with the world. But but I think 
you know, I think our churches, we can think, well, hey, uh, our biggest problem is our opponents outside of us. But I think it's always true. Our biggest, uh, finally, th- those are real opponents. But what what weakens the church are, are really the enemies within, when we compromise within. And I think that's how John sees it. So when John's calling on the church to hang on and, and to endure and to make it to the end, he's saying don't don't compromise with the world in this way. Even though it looks as if it will be the easier path, it won't be the easier path ultimately for you. So if you're preaching through the the book of Revelation, would one application be to the church, you are the Antichrist? (laughs) No, no, that is not one application. (laughs) Maybe I I misunderstood you there. Um, But you have, you're not only a professor at at Southern and uh, theologian writing, but you serve as an elder and you you preach. And uh, even up until recently, you were preaching regularly at your local church, Clifton Baptist Church in Louisville. Um, and you've preached through Revelation, is that right? You've preached through the whole book? I did. Not just the, the opening letters, which are often what preachers pick out to preach through, and then they stop after chapter three. Yeah. How were those sermons received when you preached through those? Yeah, I think that, well, there are some people who disagreed, right? It's a controversial book. Hmm. But um, yeah, that was received really well. I think people, people were helped seeing that Revelation isn't simply a prophecy chart about the end times. Well, I don't think it's that at all. Mm. Uh, I think there were help seeing, no, this book speaks to our lives today as Christians. It speaks to uh, how we should live. And I would emphasize a lot, what are some major themes in Revelation? <clears throat> God, God triumphs. The, the, the blood of the Lamb cleanses us. Um, we're, we're called upon to endure and to the to the end, God is God is that sovereign Creator. So I, I would try to say to the the people in our church, actually, Revelation doesn't tell us something that we we didn't already know. It reaffirms what we know from the rest of the Bible, hmm. but in a, in a remarkable way. Hmm. Because I think often when people come to Revelation, they think, "Oh man, this book's you know totally different. This is we're going to find out things that are strikingly new that we haven't seen anywhere else." But I don't think Revelation is like that. I think that's a mistake from the outset. Oh, that's a good point. <clears throat> so, what um, would you put yourself in a certain interpretive camp? There's kind of the four basic camps, like the preterism, uh, historicism, idealism, futurism. Like, do you place yourself within one of those groups? Uh, I would say I'm a combination of uh, idealism, preterism, and futurism. I think there's truth in all those views. I'm the historicist view, I wouldn't put myself in that camp at all, because that sees Revelation as kind of a description of all of church history, uh, uh, an outline or prophecy of all of church history, and I don't think it's that. Why, just just real briefly in a couple sentences, if you can do that, why would you say it's not that one? Well, I don't, I don't think, you know, we don't see in Revelation, I mean, here's just an example, I don't think we see in Revelation, here's how the church, uh, the, here's the nature of the church in AD 1000. Right, and 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 then and and usually the seven letters are used. And here's the church in thirteen hundred. And here's the church in fifteen hundred. I, I don't think the book operates that way. So I think that's just a fundamentally flawed way of looking, looking at the book. You know, usually people who do this today, they they read it in terms of, you know, the the early church started 
strong, then their love grew cold, and then they say, now today we're the Laodicean church. And so you know, that's what the historicist. That's what the historicist says, okay. and I, I think that's an arbitrary reading. Okay, Mo- most would agree. The historicist view isn't very popular today. Okay, okay, yeah. that's helpful. We'll come back to different kind of interpretative grids there, but uh, I know as a New Testament scholar, you like to get into the text. Like I was just looking at Revelation one one through three. It starts off saying these are the events that are to take place soon and the time is near. Um, Did any of the events then uh, of the prophecy of this book take place in the time period of the original readers there like in the first and second centuries? Well, I mean, I think I think they're dealing with. I think for John, the beast is more than the Roman Empire, but I think it includes the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. So I think John is speaking to the situation and circumstances of the churches, the seven churches of his day. They would they would they would recognize what Babylon. Uh, I mean, these things are all debated, right? But I think Babylon stands for the city of Rome. So he's, he's talking about. Babylon persecuting uh, the church. So yeah, I think it relates to the first century readers, but I think it relates also to Christians all through history. Both, it's both. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's that's well. Let's <clears throat> let's just go through. There's a lot of symbols, a lot of images. Um, although you, we can, we'll go come back to that in terms of why some people maybe interpret these things literally. But um, who would you say the four living creatures stand in for, or what are what are those four living creatures symbolizing? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's clear. Well, the, what I would say is the key to interpreting Revelation, at least one of the major keys, is to know your Old Testament. So you know, you come across these four living creatures in chapter four, like they're so bizarre and what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. But you you read the Old Testament, Ezekiel one, Ezekiel ten. They're, they're, they're right there uh, in those chapters. I mean, those chapters themselves, Ezekiel 1 is a very difficult chapter to read. And then it's very interesting in Revelation 4, what they say, holy, 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 is, is what the seraphim say in Isaiah 6. So it's a little bit hard to know for sure who they are. Are they, are they the, because in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, those four living creatures are cherubim. But then they say what the seraphim say. So I think it's fair enough to say they're, they're heavenly beings, angelic beings of some kind mm-hmm. from, from the Old Testament. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's what Michael said, too. So, so far, you're, you're um, <laughs> on consistent ground. Um, what about the 24 elders? Again, that's, you know, that's a really debated thing. I, I think uh, some people think the 24 elders are actually human beings. Elders are often human beings in the Old Testament, so that could be right. I'm not, I'm not dogmatic about that. But I actually think, again, the 24 elders are um, angelic beings of some kind. But you have, you, know, you have the 12 tri- tribes and the 12 apostles. So I think the 24 elders are an- angelic heavenly beings, but they, they represent the church. Mm-hmm. So uh, they represent the people of God all through history, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, which are mentioned later in Revelation. So I, I think they're heavenly beings that represent the church, and the four, four living beings represent all of creation, right? Because remember, you know, what, what are they, you know? You know, you have the, the, the lion, what is it, the, the ox, the eagle, and a human being. So, so they, they sort of oversee all of creation, the 24 
uh, elders, I think, represent their heavenly counterparts to the church on earth. But as you know, that like a lot of things in Revelation, since John never tells us exactly what they are, some people think, yeah, they're just human beings. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, okay, that's helpful. Um, we'll just kind of keep on walking through uh, different different things. What about you know the the center of the book? We have the seals, the bowls, the trumpets. Um, how do those seem uh, fit together? We just have a bunch of judgment kind of going on really in the center of the book, it seems. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a huge interpretive decision. I understand that this, the seals and the trumpets represent judgments that take place all through history. So, you know, a lot of interpreters say the seals and the trumpets relate to judgments at the very end of history only. Mm-hmm. But But my argument is, they represent judgments that are taking place all through history in very symbolic language. And, and an, actually, I think the seals especially match the kind of thing we see in Matthew 24. So, you know, you, it, it depends on how you interpret this again, right? But I see the white horse as the preaching of the gospel. There's war. There's uh, famine. There's uh, the, the death, destruction. There's there's martyrdom, right? So those are the those are the seals, and then the the trumpets are other kinds of judgments that are taking place that affect a third of the earth. So I would ar- argue they those mark out all of human history. Then when it comes to the bowls, I differ here from some. I think the bowl judgments are so comprehensive that they represent judgments that occur uh, either at or near the end. So I think the, the bold judgments are the climax of, hmm. of the judgments we see all through history. And the reason I'd argue that is that judgments are so comprehensive, you know. Um, all, the, all the water turns to blood and so forth and so on. It's so, the, the, the judgments are so devastating, even if it's symbolic, that I think it has to re- refer to judgments at the end. Uh, just for the theological nerds out there, what, what uh, like New Testament scholars or theologians would take that particular perspective on the, the seals, the bulls, and the trumpets? And- well, I'd be really close to Greg Beale, okay. except for he would see the bulls as also occurring all through history. Okay. So we would differ a little bit there. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if anybody says it exactly the way I do. Probably someone does. I can't remember. Okay. Yeah. Um, what about the mark of the beast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think that mark of the beast is symbolic. I don't think there's a literal mark. I mean, maybe there. some people think there would be, but I think it relates even to the first century. And I think... Uh, I think the mark of the beast, just just as 144,000 are sealed on their foreheads, I think those are symbols. The mark of the beast is those who belong, who belong to you know the antichrist, so to speak. And um, that you know, I mean, I remember years ago teaching my high schoolers in Cedar Mill Bible Church here in Portland, and they were worried, you know, hey, if I get the wrong credit card or something, do I have the mark of the beast? And Obviously, it doesn't work that way. The people who take the mark of the beast are—they're siding with evil. It's not—it's not an an accident where you get the wrong credit card or vaccine. Wrong. 
<laughs> yeah. Moving right along. Um, well, there's a lot of different images that we could talk about, uh, but for the sake of time, I mean, the the thing that seem, people seem to get excited about, at least uh, a few people in our church even, um, and there was even a debate about this before uh, Michael came to serve here as pastor, is interpreting the millennium. Um, and uh, kind of along with that, a little bit the tribulation. Um, so, you know, you and and what's interesting about the interp- how we interpret the millennium and the tribulation is in evangelicalism today, it seems in some camps that how we interpret the millennium is like a litmus test to biblical fidelity. Um, and, you know, there have been some evangelical uh, leaders who have said, like, if you aren't pre-mill, I, you're not really maybe a reformed, um, you know, Christian. Um, or your your whole hermeneutic is off. Just any any thoughts on how this how we interpret the millennium and tribulation before we hear your view? Uh, just putting it in perspective, like how is it both important, but also um, so you know this is it's it's an important aspect of biblical interpretation. How we especially you know how we interpret Revelation twenty, which we heard from Michael in his view a few few weeks ago here at Henson. But um, also, how when we're tempted to divide over this issue and get really excited, I feel like you've had helpful perspective as you've kind of your view has changed over the years here and here and there. Um, so, just any any thoughts on just putting this into a larger context? This issue? Yeah, I I think the millennium is a third tier issue. You know, a first tier issue is say <clears throat> justification by faith alone, the Trinity, the Trinity, yeah deity of Christ. Mm-hmm. I, I think a secondary issue is, say, something like baptism, right? You, you've got to decide as a church, are you going to baptize babies or not, mm-hmm. or only those who uh, are converted and have faith in Christ. So that's a secondary issue. But this is a third-tier issue because uh, it's, not, it's not a primary fundamental issue. You, d- you really don't have to have a stance as a church on this issue. Uh, it doesn't affect your practice in dramatic ways. Of, of course, everything in the Bible matters. But we recognize, you know, from the very beginning of history, uh, you know, Christians were divided on this. We see this very early in church history. We see there were premillennialists and then there were amillennialists. I think it's very inter- interesting. Papias, who is a premillennialist, Eusebius comes along and says, you know, well, Papias was a premillennialist because he was, because he was dumb. So, you know, the arguments go way back. I think we've learned, at least most have learned, or at least we all should learn, not to make this a fundamental primary issue, to respect one another, whether you're post-millennial, amillennial, pre-millennial. Good evangelical believers have held these various views throughout history. I don't think it should be a matter that uh, divides us. Can, that's that's really helpful, and I recognize um, that. Uh, and even growing up, um, in in you know in our home, um, I feel like we didn't. I wasn't hearing a lot of conversation about the millennium. That didn't happen. I didn't even really realize there were different views on the millennium, on particularly on Revelation twenty until like into college. Mm-hmm. Um, even though we were having lots of theological, or I was hearing a lot of theological conversation at home. Uh, I I say that all to say that I think most people, maybe even listening, won't even know what the different millennial views are. So let's start with post-millennial. Can you just tell us briefly what post-millennialism is? 
Yeah, just very quickly, postmillennialism, evangelical postmillennialism is the idea that the world will be slowly transformed by the preaching of the gospel. And then as at the at the end of this millennial period, which either begins for postmillennialists at the resurrection or at some undefined point in history, though a thousand years aren't literal, then when the world is Christianized and transformed by the gospel, Jesus will come. And that view, uh, like Augustine had that view, is that correct? Or uh, maybe not? The Puritan, I mean, it's most would say that Augustine is amillennial, but the, many of the Puritans have this view. Okay, You can read a nice little book about postmillennialism uh, by Ian Murray called The Puritan Hope. I'm not a post-millennialist. Was but, Ian Murray post-millennial? Uh, you know, I don't remember. Okay. I read that book a long time ago. He he might have been. But most of the Puritans were. But, and post-millennialism and all-millennialism are very closely related because they right. both they both believe uh, that the final judgment and the coming of Christ all occur at the same time, the, the rapture. The rapture of the saints is uh, post-tribulational and so forth. So, but the uh, post-millennialism would be the minority view today. Yeah, yeah, among yeah, you, evangelicals. Yes, yeah. you, I, we, you would see it amongst theonomists. Uh, in, in some circles, hold it, but it is a minority view. Okay, what yeah. about premillennialism? Premillennialism, you see it in the early church. You see it right away with people like Justin Martyr, uh, Papias, as I said. Um, and and how how would you just briefly articulate what premillennialism is? Y- yes, premillennialism is the idea that Christ will personally uh, come to earth. He'll return and he'll reign on the earth for. A thousand years. Now, you could be premillennial and say those thousand years are symbolic. Most premillennialists believe that that it's literal. It's a literal number. Dis- there are different kinds of premillennialists. There are historic premillennialists and dispensational premillennialists. Most people, they, you know, they've read the Left Behind books or how like me. You encouraged me to read those books. You were trying to make me a premillennialist. <laughs> I did encourage you to read those books. Not not be, just so you would read. <laughs> not because I agreed with that theology, because I don't. Uh, well, now those books have had a bigger influence on me than any other books beside the Bible. So thank you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I was entertained. So, so that, so you know, you have these in the premillennial view. You have uh, the dispensational premillennial view. You have a, a a rapture, and then a seven year tribulation, and then Jesus comes to the earth. But the historic premillennialists don't don't hold that view. Historic premillennialists believe that the rapture and uh, Jesus coming to the earth occur at the same time. At the same time. Yeah. And, and dispensationalism, um, what, how would you just articulate what that is if you haven't grown up hearing that term? What, what does that have to, to do with the millennium? Well, I mean, I think the most helpful thing to say is dispensationalists, they distinguish very sharply between Israel and the church. Mm-hmm. So that that fits with the under their understanding of the of the rapture the church the the church is removed and then God works primarily not exclusively but primarily with Israel the 144,000 are understood to be Israel in Revelation 7 mm-hmm. so uh there and in the millennium the the Jewish people have us have a special place in this in a dispensational understanding and ruling with Jesus okay were you raised dispensational? 
I mean, not raised, like early in the faith. Was that the view you were taught? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I went to Western Seminary, and Western Seminary was a dispensational school. So, so, you, so did you kind of hold that pre-mill dispensational uh, view when you were at Western? I did, but really loosely. I mean, I was just being, you know, I came out of a Catholic background. Uh-huh. So I, I had questions about it from the beginning. So I didn't, and I'd never really studied this material before. But even by the time I was leaving Western, I was having questions about it. Were you leaning Amel? No, not at the time. Okay. So, and, the, and what's Amel? So, Amillennialism. So, the, uh, the Amillennial view, which is a bad uh, description of the view, because Amillennial literally means no millennium. But a better word for it is realized millennialism. The Amill view is that uh, the, the millennium starts at the, at the resurrection of Jesus, and he reigns. I mean, there's different millennial views as well, but I'll just say this one is the most popular today. He reigns with his saints in heaven. So uh, the, the saints reign with Christ in their intermediate state be, after they die before the resurrection. So, uh, so, so the millennium starts at the resurrection and it ends at the second coming. One reason the millennium isn't so isn't a major issue, right? Is whatever your view, it ends. It isn't yeah. forever. Okay. Uh-huh. Isn't it funny that so Michael preached on the new creation last week, great sermon on the new creation. The new creation lasts forever. Whatever your view of the millennium, it's temporary. So isn't it funny that we invest so much energy, hmm. so often more energy into something that's temporary than what will last forever? And for some Christians, it becomes more important, I think, in what they talk about and what they emphasize than the new creation. Huh. Something's backwards there. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's that's a good point. So, what's your view on the millennium? Well, I've currently. I'm my r- today. Don't it, do not trust me on Wednesday. the millennium. I don't know I'm, what your view on Wednesday is. I I'm really, yeah, I'm very unstable. I've been pre-mill. I've been amill. I've been pre-mill one day, amill the next. But right now, I hold this view called new creation millennialism, which is that the millennium is the first age of the new creation. And if you want to learn more about that, buy my upcoming commentary. Yeah, I was going to reference that. You're, yeah. you're, right, you're currently writing a commentary on the book of Revelation. Is this going to be, uh, does this, is this book have pictures in it? <laughs> No, Pop up. no pictures, hmm. no pictures. Hmm. I actually, I've already written a commentary on Revelation, the ESV expository commentary. I have a short one, and in that book, I'm Amel. So, you're in that, okay. Yeah. But in this one, you're going to be this, have this view, new creation millennialism. Yeah. Anybody else take that position other than you? <laughs> uh, Eckhart Schnabel. Is who you know everybody sounds kn- like a cool guy. Yeah, he's he's a very cool guy. Teaches at Gordon Conwell Seminary. Yeah, you know it's not a real popular view, so it might it might not be. You might not be that have that view tomorrow. I might not have we'll, that view we'll tomorrow. Have to, yeah, have to do a rerun of this podcast maybe next year and yeah. see if you've totally changed yeah. your mind. Um, this is why I'm glad it's a third tier issue. But you, but you, you still hold that the millennium comes to even within your your kind of updated view, it still comes to an end. It's just the first kind of 
part of the new yeah. creation. Yeah, whatever whatever view you hold, it's temporary. It's still, still temporary. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Just just making sure. So my this new creation view, I just want to say, it's kind of a via media between the pre-mill and all-mill view. So that's why I like it because I've... Are got- you just trying to be like political here, like a great compromiser? <laughs> You're like, when faced with a choice, I'll take both. No, it doesn't work because, you know, I talked to an all-mill person and he didn't like it because he said, oh, you're really pre-mill. And then when I talk to the pre-mill people, they think I'm too all-mill. So so it actually so, works. It, you just make both sides mad. And I, it's leading me to get persecuted. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, so you can really feel what these first Christians who are reading the, the Revelation felt exactly. just by your exactly. own view on Revelation. Exactly. That's very ironic. Um, what makes you, you heard Michael's sermon on Revelation 21 and 22 this last Sunday. What makes you excited for heaven personally as you, as you think about uh, this vision, as you think about our, our future with Christ? Yeah, I mean, I think, the, I think the greatest statement in those chapters is uh, we will see his face. Hmm. So what, what is the new creation fundamentally about? It's about uh, fellowship with God hmm. at a level that uh, we can't imagine. And that's why I believe, and I think Michael explained this well, I believe the language in those chapters is highly symbolic. Because how, how do you describe the indescribable? Mm-hmm. How, how can we even begin to picture uh, what, what that relationship is going to be like? So John, John does his best, right, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to, to convey uh, experiences that are ineffable at the end of the day. So uh, it's interesting that he uses all, all these images, right, of, of gold and pearls and precious stones and a tree of life for the healing of the nations. I think these are all pictures of, uh, of a unrivaled beauty and glory and loveliness that uh, is uh, so stunning that we can't fully capture it in Mm. words. Mm -hmm. But John points us under the inspiration of the Spirit to this uh, wonderful future we have, but it's it's with God and the Lamb. And that's the other interesting thing, right? It's God Mm -hmm. and the Lamb, and of course the Spirit as well. Mm -hmm. We enjoy that Trinitarian fellowship with God forever. So will (laughs) will we literally see his face? (laughs) <laughs> I don't, you know, it's, again, that's a, that's a hard thing to describe. I mean, God is, God is spirit, right? Uh-huh. What, what, what does that finally mean? I don't think, I don't think that we can fully articulate what that means. I think it means, right, you know, John says, when we see him, we will be like him. This is in First John, because we mm-hmm. will see him as he is. I mm-hmm. mean, I don't think there's, we, we can we can describe what what it means. I mean, God doesn't have a face. I mean, of course, Christ does. Christ mm-hmm. is God and man. Mm-hmm. But um, I clearly will see Christ's face. We'll have resurrected bodies. But what does it mean to see God? Yeah, you know, it's start, sort of like trying to describe to a two-year-old what it's like to be an adult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you, can, you can point to it, but we can't fully uh, explain or understand what that means. We will see God, hmm. whatever mm-hmm. that means. Good, good. <laughs> Would you see going to uh, Shriners Iris Gardens during full bloom, like you just did the other day, is maybe a little taste of heaven? If you're try- to try to describe what it's like to walk among the iris in full bloom to someone who's never seen a flower before, 
Is that a good, good comparison? I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. The beauty, you know, the beauty of a flower, the beauty of a mountain, the beauty of the ocean, the beauty mm-hmm. of the rivers, every, a, 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 a great meal, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, a wonderful relationship with a person. They're all pointers. Hmm. They're all pointers to a beauty that uh, is beyond description. Yeah. Amen. What's your favorite song about heaven? <laughs> Well, um, I, I, you know, I forget the title. I really like the one about the harps. What's the title? Hark, time? I Hear the Harps Eternal. Yeah, I we, love that song. We did this that this last Sunday. Yeah. So, you know, I haven't sung in churches I've been in. We haven't sung that song very often, but I loved all the songs you guys sang this Sunday. They were fabulous, you know, and they were all so focusing on on, on heaven. And yeah, we need to do that more. And that. Uh, what we, another song we sang? A lot of the songs, uh, the sands of time was that. The what, sands was, of time are sinking. Yeah, that was fabulous. I love. Yeah, I loved them all. So we did them for you. Thank yeah. you. Um, so uh, final question: um, If you're someone, you know, maybe you listen to the, the Michael sermons on Revelation. You could go to Clifton's website and listen to how many sermons did you do through Revelation? Do you remember over ten? Oh yeah, over ten. Okay, I think Michael yeah. did eleven. So uh, at at certain points, he was moving at a pretty fast clip. Yeah. So yeah. I think I did about twenty. Okay. Yeah. So yours would be more detailed. But what uh, what would be a good resource for understanding the different views, understanding the different images and symbols in Revelation? It can be a pretty intimidating book, just to be, yeah. especially for a new Christian, just reading through in their quiet times. Any good resource that you would point to? Well, I mean, this is a shameless plug, but I do have that ESV expository commentary. I think that's helpful. I like Dennis Johnson's commentary, uh, published by Presbyterian and Reformed, uh, The Triumph of the Lamb. Um, uh, From a premillennial point of view, Jim Hamilton has a very uh, uh, accessible commentary, I think published by Crossway. So I think those are three good resources. If you want something uh, more detailed, then, uh, well, that, that's hard to say because those books are so detailed. Maybe right. I won't say that. Those, those are good Good for now. Dad, thanks for having this conversation. Was it maybe the highlight of the trip? It, it definitely was. Good. Yeah. Correct answer. <laughs> thanks for coming on the show again. It was great to be with you. 